0: Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What a marvelous privilege we have this morning, as we do every day, to hear words from God our Father, those that we've just heard read, and also will you join me now, follow along with me as I read to you again from His Holy Word, this time from Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 7. After the report of Jesus raising from the dead, the only son of a widow who lived in the town of Nain, Luke continues with these words, beginning with verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of their diseases and plagues and evil spirits and on many who were blind He bestowed sight and he answered them, go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is he is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. And I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he as a result of jesus miracles especially raising the dead the reputation of jesus swelled and reports of him were carried throughout the land one of the places to which these reports were carried was to a to a prison fortress 5 miles east of the dead sea where john the baptist had been incarcerated for daring to speak out against herod who had married herodias his brother philip's wife john was languishing in this prison at the same time that the popularity of jesus was on the rise among the people and he had become confused and questions Had begun to arise in his mind. He had publicly identified Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, but Jesus was not proclaiming his Messiahship with the degree of certainty and urgency that John expected. His confinement in this gloomy prison and the fact that Jesus had not sent to deliver him were the roots of his of this lapse from the faith that he had proclaimed concerning Christ on the banks of the Jordan when Jesus had come out to him to be baptized of him. His, it was a temporary lapse of faith, for John was no fickle, wavering character, as Christ would plainly declare, beginning in verse 24. But there are commentators who assume that the reason why John sent messengers to Jesus with the question, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another, was not, was, was not because he was shaken in his own confidence, but because he was simply having the disciples ask the question for their own sakes. This position was uh, adopted by many of the writers in the early church. However, Tertullian, who himself was one of these early church writers, one of these um, church fathers, as they are called, and nearly all modern commentators believe that John's question was prompted by his own confusion, by his own wavering faith, though it may have been shared by his disciples as well. And this is the conclusion, I think, that anyone who reads this passage um, without any preconceived desire to protect John would would come to. I just think we have to to go with what the text says. And John was the one who asked the question. And Jesus' reply that, that he gives to John was not simply for the benefit of the disciples, because he said to them, you go and tell John. So Jesus obviously is receiving this question as if it comes from John and his response is to John. Surely our own life experiences I think with questions and doubts arising in times of difficulty and distress give us parallels to what was going on in the life of John at this time. We can see how that that imprisonment would be especially depressing to this prophet who who preferred life in the desert in the wilderness and who was undergoing compelled inactivity and how that this would would be would trouble his spirit and how that he might be tempted to think that that if Jesus was indeed the the bridegroom might he not have at least spared a thought for the friend of the bridegroom who is languishing in prison. Besides all of this, the work that Jesus was doing as reported to him by his disciples did not fit the role of the Messiah as John conceived it. You remember that he had, a, he had in, in, in announcing the coming of the Christ and his kingdom, he had talked about whose fan is in his hand, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. So where was the winnowing fan? Where was the axe laid at the tree? Where was the consuming fire? This gentle friend of publicans and sinners was not what he had expected the one who was mightier than himself to be. Is it possible for a prophet of God to go through a dark night of the soul to experience doubts? Is it impossible for them to do that? I don't think so. If you thought, if you stop to think for a minute about Jeremiah, who was ready to turn in his prophet's card because of all the derision that was being heaped upon him by the people. He even said to God, your word has become a reproach to me and I will speak no more in your name. And then there's Elijah. Elijah who said to God, I've been very jealous for the Lord, and the people have forsaken your covenant. They have torn down your altars. They've killed the prophets, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life. And then there's Jonah, who boarded a ship to escape the responsibilities of the word of prophecy, that God had given him regarding Nineveh. And then you come to the New Testament, there's the example of of Peter who denied the Lord. The truth of the matter is, inspiration did not make men morally perfect. It did not protect them for such moments of doubt and fear. So John's faith on this occasion wavered. But even in this moment of his weakness, He is an example for us. For John, though his faith was reeling, he stretched out his hand to Jesus and sought to steady himself. He did what all true believers should do. When they have doubts, when they have questions, they should take them to Jesus, who will hear them and who will answer them. And the lesson for us, I think, is this. We shall not come to much harm, spiritually speaking if we will just carry our doubts, our fears, and our cares to Christ. But every day, John languishes in this horrible prison, and he's wondering, where is Jesus? Did I make a mistake? Where is the kingdom he promised to establish? Did I proclaim the wrong one to be the Son of God? The more these reports came to him of of what Jesus was doing and saying, the more concerns he had. And finally, he chose two of his disciples and sent them to Jesus with the question Tell us, are you the one to come or shall we look for another? Before we get to Jesus' answer to this question, I want us to have a word of application. Do you realize how many millions of people there are in the world today, even in our own country? who are not persuaded that Jesus was the one. The whole Jewish nation is still waiting for the Messiah, having rejected Jesus as being the Messiah. They're convinced that Jesus was not the one to come. And every Muslim on this planet believes Jesus ultimately was not the one who was to come. And there are others looking for a hero here or a heroine there, someone or something who can fill the role of rescuer, deliverer, or savior. They're just not satisfied that it was Jesus. And then there are millions more who believe that Jesus was one of the ones, but he was by no means the only one. They will acknowledge that Jesus is one way to God, but they will shrink in horror at the suggestion that he is the only way to God. In fact, I can't think of a, of a single pro- proclamation more repugnant to our secular culture than the proclamation that there is only one way to God and that Jesus is that way. And if you think that God is stingy or lacking in grace because he has restricted the way to himself, because there is only one way, then perhaps you should ask yourself this question. Why is there any way that we can approach God? What have we done that would merit God's being moved to provide a way of salvation for sinful mankind? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If this is where I think the rubber meets the road, as we, as we sometimes say. This is where loyalty to Christ comes to the test. If we're not willing to acknowledge our faith in this truth, that Jesus is the one, then are we really children of God? Jesus said, whosoever shall uh, confess me before men, him will I confess before my Father who is in heaven. But he said, whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I deny before my Father who is in heaven. It's our duty not only to believe in Christ, but to confess that faith, whether it's in suffering for him, if we're called to do that, or whether it's in serving him daily, Presenting our bodies, our lives, as it were, as a daily sacrifice unto God. What it all boils down to is this. Are we going to please man? Bow to political correctness in this pluralistic and relativistic culture of ours? Or are we really persuaded that Jesus Christ is God's only son? He's the only one to have provided an atonement for our sins. The only one whom God has raised from the dead. The one whom God has appointed as judge and appointed a day in which he will judge the world by Jesus. Not Mohammed, not Confucius, not Buddha. All of these are dead and only Jesus has been raised and elevated to the right hand of God the Father. Today, I think, perhaps as never before, especially in this country, we need to be prepared. We need to be willing as Christians to stand in the face of whatever hostilities there might be and say, I believe Jesus is the one who was to come. I believe he's the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Like Polycarp who lived at the close of the apostolic age, at the age of 86, was arrested and carried into the Colosseum. And even the emperor didn't really want to see him suffer what he was about to suffer, especially at his age. And he said, all you've got to do to escape this is to to say, away away with the atheist." To the Romans, the Christians were the unbelievers. They were the the atheists. And history tells us that Polycarp looked at the emperor, looked at the Romans, and he said, away with the atheist. As if to say, if all I have to say is away with the atheist, away with them. You people are the ones who are the atheist. And then they tried further to convince him to deny Jesus. And he said, for 86 years, he sustained me and I will not deny him now. And so he died for his faith. I wonder, Is there a polycarp among us today? Are those here today who are willing to say, yes, he is the one, he's the only one, the one that I will die for? But back to the question that John had his disciples to ask Jesus. Are you the one or should we look at another? You know, Jesus didn't get angry at John about that. I love the way Jesus answered that question. He said, you go tell John the things you have seen and heard. Tell him that the blind see, the lame are walking, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. and, And don't forget this. Tell him the poor are having the gospel preached to them. Now, why was that important? you would think that what would create a stir marvel among the people was to see people who had been blind from their birth able to see again people who had been lame leaping for joy people who had been deaf hearing their loved ones talk to the people who had been dead raised to walk among their loved ones that's the big deal and Jesus said, Go tell John about these things, what you've seen and heard, but, but don't forget to tell him that the poor have the gospel preached to them. Why was that included? Well, if we turn back to the Old Testament and read from the prophets, it's clear why that was included. For example, Isaiah Gave a job description, if you want to call it that, for the Messiah, for the anointed one, in chapter 61 and verse 1. He said, Behold, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. There it is. It's as if Jesus is saying to John, John, you want to know if I'm the one who was to come? Read your Bible, John. Read Isaiah 61, read Malachi, read other prophets, and you'll know whether or not you should look for another because nobody else was fulfilling the prophetic description of the Messiah like Jesus was. And then Jesus had one final word for John. He said, tell him this, Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Is it possible for words of rebuke to be expressed more softly than Jesus did in these words when he sent them to John in the form of a a benediction, of a beatitude? Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. These words and the words in in the verses immediately following indicate that That Jesus expected John to continue in faith. Why is it that some of us who profess to be Christians are reluctant to say that Jesus is the only one? We know how the world thinks about it, we know that it's utterly offensive to them. For someone to suggest that there's only one way and that that one way is Jesus. And in an effort to avoid the offense that Jesus mentions here, but also to curry favor with the world, some will say, Christianity is right for me, but it may not be right for you. You believe what you want to believe. You pray to your God and I'll pray to mine. And in doing so, we deny Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is not just one of the ways. He is what? The only way. And Jesus said, Blessed is the one who is not offended in me. And now the messengers leave. And Jesus turns to the crowd. And he gives a commentary about the man who had had asked the question. And what did he say? Now that... John's disciples were gone. He didn't have to worry about them. Did he really unload on John? Did he say, what's wrong with this man? What's going on with him? Why is he vacillating in faith like this? Is that what he said? No. In fact, what Jesus says to the crowd after John's disciples had left basically was a hymn of praise for john the baptist here's what he said jesus turned to the crowd and he and 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 many of whom had been out to see probably most of whom who had been out to see john on the banks of the jordan he said what were you looking for what did you go out to see there a reed shaken by the wind a man in soft clothing jesus meant that john was not a softy he was not a vacillating popularity seeker. He was not preaching only those things that the people wanted to hear. What did you go to see? John the Baptist, a man who came out of the wilderness, lived on locust and wild honey, wore garments made from camel's hair, itchy, scratchy garments made from camel's hair who boldly addressed the leaders of the people who had rejected jesus as a generation who would reject jesus as a generation of vipers he was a man of courage and strength and with these words jesus was affirming his confidence in the fact that john would ultimately stand by the proclamation of the lord as the lamb of god Which he had made, regardless of what his circumstances were, even if it cost him his life, as it did, of course. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, that's what they'd gone out to see. A prophet. For 400 years, the voice of prophecy had been silent in Israel. Malachi had been the last prophetic voice, and then all of a sudden out of the traditional meeting place between God and his people comes this prophet proclaiming the kingdom of God and calling upon people to repent and to be baptized. You went out to see a prophet, but let me tell you, he is more than a prophet, Jesus said. This is the one of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face to prepare The way before you. Jesus is saying that the Old Testament prophets not only prophesied about the coming Messiah, they also prophesied about the prophet who would herald the coming of the Messiah. He's not just a prophet, he himself is the subject of prophecy. He was the one who would come to prepare the way for the Lord. But according to Luke, more than that, he he was coming to prepare a people for the Lord. And that's a whole subject of his own. But the, the apostles were some of those that John prepared for the Lord. Jesus said, He is a prophet, but he's more than just a prophet. He's the prophet. He's the herald of the Messiah. He's the one who would usher in the Messianic era. That period of time, which God had been pointing to from the very beginning, man's fall in the garden. Actually, before that time, before the foundation of the world, John was coming to announce all of that. And then he makes an astonishing statement. He says, among those born of women, there is not a greater than John the Baptist. I asked my class a few weeks ago, it's kind of a quick uh, trick question, but I said, who is the greatest prophet in the Old Testament? Someone caught on and answered, I think it was Cecil who answered it correctly. Maybe some others as well. But some said Jeremiah, Isaiah, Amos, or Moses. And of course I said, no, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament was John the Baptist. Wait a minute. You read about John, yes, I know we read about John the Baptist in the New Testament, but we read about the Old Testament in the New Testament. Because the Old Testament era, the Old Testament period, was still in a way. John belonged to that period. And, uh, and so he said, among those born of women, that would get everybody. There's not a greater than John the Baptist. That's easy to understand. That's easy to understand. But then he said, he that is least... And the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. How in the world are we to understand that? Well, let me say right up front, and then we'll explain a little bit more. Two things. John the Baptist was never in the kingdom because the kingdom had not been established by the time of his death. And secondly, the term greater has reference to privilege rather than character so according to jesus john was the greatest prophet he was the greatest perhaps man of the old testament far greater far greater in some respects than i am and you are greater in terms of his importance to the whole scheme of human redemption but john was not privileged to be in the kingdom. I am and you are. And so there's a sense in which you and I are greater than John. Someone says, well, does that mean your reward and my reward in heaven will be greater than John's? No, I don't think that's what it means at all. So what does it mean? The least in the kingdom be great. I think that it means that even the least in the kingdom is in a state, a, a state of greater blessedness, enjoy greater privileges than John and all of those of his era did. As I said a moment ago, John belonged to the Old Testament. We read about him in the New Testament, but he really belonged to the Old Testament era. He was the herald of the new covenant. He was the forerunner of Christ and his kingdom. But he was still on the outside looking in when the kingdom was established. The kingdom had not yet been established. And so anyone born after the death of Christ, after his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, after Pentecost, in terms of human redemption are in a better situation than John was in. The Bible even tells us that even the angels, even the angels desire to look into those things that have been brought to pass by the finished work of Jesus Christ. The covenant we are under is a better covenant. We have a better high priest. We have a better sacrifice. Everything is better, the Hebrew writer says. And it all has to do with the kingdom of God. And there are those who believe the kingdom has never yet been established. It's, it's, it's in the future. But the New Testament makes it clear that the kingdom of God has been established in the past. Jesus coming into the world was to inaugurate the kingdom. John preached that the kingdom of God is at hand, and Jesus preached that the kingdom of God was at hand, and then he said, Uh, If you see me casting out Satan by the power of God, then you know the kingdom of God is among you. So the kingdom has been established. It's, It's very much real and very powerful. And because of that, our situations in terms of God's redemption is greater than that of John. You know, sometimes we think, it would have been great if we could have lived back then those people were blessed beyond us they were able to see jesus it wouldn't have been good to see jesus work miracles to maybe even see his crucifixion to see him after his resurrection to see him as he was taken up into heaven no no we're in a far better position than that we're living on this side of the cross on this side of his being anointed As a matter of fact, we're in a much, much, much better situation. Well, someone says, "How so?" Well, this this might be a good time to ask that question. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I have some concerns about our society. I'm not a gloom and doom person. I don't think. But when I read Romans chapter 1, for example, beginning with verse 18, where it talks about the wrath of God being poured out upon the unrighteousness uh, and ungodliness of men, and then I go on to read about all of the sins of which these uh, heathens were guilty, and then in chapter 2, reading about the sins of the Jews, I'm concerned about... You, you could very well be reading off the pages of, 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 of the newspaper today. Very little difference. Let me just give you one example. And this is a, of a terrestrial nature, not, not, an inter, not a spiritual matter, which is even more important, But, but something has always concerned me is our national debt. <laughs> you know, in the last 10 or 12 years, our national debt has grown from 10 trillion. I looked the other day, 30 trillion dollars now it took what 240 years roughly for our country to amass a debt of 10 trillion and that's way too much and now in only 10 or 12 years it's tripled and the thing is not many people concerned about you they say well we owe it to ourselves not really that's not true How are we going to pay it back? Well, if it ever is paid back, we will pay it back. And our children and our grandchildren and their children and their grandchildren. Problem is, we'll probably just go on doing like we've been doing, put a Band-Aid over it, print more money. And our currency is worth less. Our savings are worth less. We're purchasing power. But I've said all that to say this. Look, the good news is this. The good news is that even if things get worse... A lot worse. I can guarantee you one thing. And that is this. Jesus Christ will still be king. We can rejoice because we are in the kingdom of Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. And our reward is in heaven. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? The desperate need of all mankind surfaces in this question that John asked. Humanity must have a Savior. And because like our first parents, we've been guilty of sin too. God has promised a Savior. He first promised that Savior when he cursed the serpent for Tempting Adam and Eve. He said, he, the Christ, shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And then since that time, from that time forward, it's all been about God's plan to save mankind through his son, Jesus Christ. And if Jesus is not the one, if he's not the savior, who is? And if you have not acknowledged him as the one, as the only one, If you've not repented of your sins, if you've not put him on in baptism, then you are at this very moment in your sins. And what does that mean? Well, let me, let's let the words of Christ answer that and then we'll be through. In John chapter 8 and verse 21 John chapter 8 and verse 21. Here's what Jesus said I'm going away. Now he's referring here to his own death, resurrection, and ascension. I'm going away and you will seek me. He's talking to these unbelieving Jews who have rejected him as the Messiah. Now I'm, I'm going away and you'll continue to look for the Messiah because you, 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 you don't believe that I'm he. Although I am, and you will die in your sins, and where I am going, you cannot come. And then in verse 24, he said, Unless you believe that I am He, you shall die in your sins. Now, folks, that's that's just how it is. Not not because I say so. Those are the words of the Son of God Himself. And I don't know what you're thinking this morning, what you're doing, what occupies your time, your thoughts, but I'm going to tell you something. We're all headed for eternity. And the only thing that will matter when we, it comes our time to die is this. Do we believe that Jesus Christ is the one, the only one, and that we rendered obedience to him? If we can be of assistance to anyone in our audience this morning, we encourage you to come while we stand together and sing.